Right, when Peter asked me to speak tonight, I sort of thought, well, all our family Sunday nights, the first Sunday in every month, we've been talking about the great I am, how great our God is. And so I thought, well, I'll continue on that theme. And I had a title or a name of God in my mind. And the next day and that night, it sort of changed. It. No, that's not the one. So tonight I want to talk about um, the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh Sabbat. Okay, it's not what I started out to say, but it's what we are, where we are now. You know, it's at the end of the book of Judges, Israel had descended into violence and chaos. You know, it was a time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Or they did what seemed right to them. Probably not very much different to the world we live in today. You know, but Israel was in a dark place, but God had a plan to turn things around. You know, he always has a plan. If we would only learn to listen and to obey. So this is a period at the end of the judges and just before the kings come into being. And it's a time when Israel had turned its back on God. But, you know, God always has a remnant who stay true to him. And the book of 1 Samuel opens with the story of Elkanah and his family. And they make, they make their annual trip to Shiloh to worship the Lord, to offer sacrifices to the Lord of hosts, to Yahweh Sabbat. And this is the first time that the name Yahweh Sabbat is mentioned in the scriptures. But have you ever stopped to think what Lord of hosts actually means? Well, the Hebrew word Sabbat means army, or warfare, warfare, and it's usually translated as hosts, but it can be used to describe a multitude of men, angels, or actual physical stars. And the word sabbat is simply the plural of sabbat. So the name Yahweh sabbat, or Yahweh sabbat, is mentioned over 270 times throughout the Old Testament. And most of its uses are in the prophets, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they're mostly when Israel is, has been tested and found wanting yet again. Not much different to the time of Elkanah. So Hannah, one of Elkanah's wives, Elkanah's wives, was deeply distressed. And the literal translation there is, she was bitter of soul. It was bad enough that she really, really wanted children and couldn't have any. She was barren. But Panina, Elkanah's other wife, well, she provoked her greatly because the Lord had closed her womb. So Hannah went to the temple and she prayed to God and she wept bitterly and she fouled a fowl and said, O Lord of hosts, or O Yahweh Sabbat. She wept uncontrollably and poured her heart out to the Lord of hosts. Now when I looked at this, I thought, well, why did Hannah use a name for God that's mostly used on every other occasion, it's a mighty military manner that it's used in, you know. So why did she not call out to the God of compassion, the God of love, the God of provision, the God of healing, the God who sees her? You know, there's so many other attributes of God that she could have called out to. But she chose to call out to Yahweh Sabbat, the Lord of, Lord of hosts. So Hannah was tormented by Penina to the point where her heart was full of bitterness. She was at the end of her tether, as we'd say here. You know, harboring bitterness and unforgiveness is draining. It literally sucks the life out of you. 
and she couldn't take anymore. She was fighting her own personal battle, which she knew she couldn't win on her own. She didn't have the strength or the energy to fight anymore. She was desperate, and so she cried out to the God who she knew could give her victory. You know, Hannah made the decision to shift her focus from the bitterness of her heart, the bitterness of her circumstances, to the sufficiency of Yahweh Sabbat, the Lord of hosts. You know, no matter what your individual, personal battle is, could be addiction, fear, anxiety, worry, depression, bitterness, unforgiveness, whatever it is, when you cry out to Almighty God from the depths of your heart, he will reveal this characteristic of himself to you. The sovereign God who rules over all the the angel armies of heaven. And he will give you the victory. He's a faithful God and he will deliver you from your torment. So stop trying to fight your battles in your own strength. Instead, call out to Yahweh Sabbat. So although this is the first time that the name, the actual name Yahweh Sabbat is used in the scriptures, you know, God had previously revealed himself as the commander of the hosts many years before this. So if we go back to Joshua, chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, we're introduced to Sar Sabah <coughs> Yahweh, the commander of the hosts of Yahweh. Now, we all know the story of Joshua, marching around Jericho, walls tumbling down. But please take time when you go home later on to read the whole story from the beginning of Joshua 1 through to the end of Joshua 5. It's a fantastic story, and there's so much detail in that. So many details and steps that we can see that God has led out, that led them to this victorious uh, battle at, at Jericho. So prior to Jericho, we know that the Israelites were full of bitterness themselves. Remember the bitter waters of Marah, where God revealed himself as the God who heals, and he healed them of their bitter hearts. We know that... They were a rebellious people. Remember the rebellion uh, at when led by Korah, when God opened up the ground and swallowed the, Korah and all the rebel leaders and all their families, just swallowed them all up. We know that they were always complaining and grumbling and moaning, but that generation passed. Moses died and the mantle transferred to Joshua. Now, although Joshua lived during the bitterness and the rebellion, the grumbling and complaining, he stepped out from among his peers and drew a line in the sand. He was the leader of a new generation. The previous generation ended up dying in the wilderness because of their unbelief. But Joshua said, no more. No more wilderness, no more unbelief, no more apathy. We're not doing that anymore. You know, a few years ago, one of the young people in the church said something that really really broke my heart and it, it shocked me and she said she had known nothing but apathy in this church she'd grown up in it now it isn't just a problem here with Glenmacken. it's the worldwide church is submerged in apathy and unbelief and just like these israelites the church is in the wilderness now, i personally don't want to be in this wilderness anymore i've trapped on a line in the sand and i've said no more I refuse to accept the apathy and unbelief all around me. I refuse to live hand in hand with it any longer. I am determined to do whatever it takes 
to bring down these strongholds that stand between us and total victory. And I know that many of you feel exactly the same way. Okay, so even though the, the River Jordan was in full flood, Yahweh stopped the river flowing further upstream and dried up the riverbed so that the Israelites could walk across. And they said, we're told that the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant stood on the dry ground in the middle of the river until they'd all crossed over. And it was only when they had stepped up onto the banks at the far side of the river that the river started to flow again. Now, the first thing I notice here is their awareness of the presence of God, represented by the Ark of the Covenant. You know, they were going nowhere without the presence of God. His presence led them down into the riverbed and remained there until they had all crossed safely. His presence never left them. You know, as believers, the Spirit of Christ lives in us. Now, Patty spoke about this on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting. You know, we are jars of clay which contain a powerful treasure. We are carriers of his presence. But are we fully aware of the treasure that is within us? Is his spirit so real to us that it overflows into every aspect of our lives? Our speech, our prayer lives, our worship, our attitudes, our actions. Do we recognize his voice when he talks to us? Are we all open to all the gifts of the Spirit given to us to enable us to live a full, victorious and abundant life? You know, the church is on the banks of the river. Some of us have crossed over. We've drawn a line in the sand and we've said, no more. We've died to apathy and unbelief. Others are still hovering. But you know, by crossing the river, like Joshua, we are declaring war. Now, the Israelites knew that as soon as they got to the other side, they would be on enemy territory. And as long as they remained in the wilderness, the enemy strongholds were unchallenged. The Israelites were, there were no threat. They just drifted aimlessly, murmuring and complaining and groaning and moaning. Now, they said they served a mighty God. But there was nothing in their lives indicating the reality of this. Did their God even exist? But you know, the moment they crossed over that river, everything changed. The Amorites and Canaanites, were told, lost their spirit. They were terrified. And you know, the devil's terrified of what God is going to do through us, his church, and that's why he'll do anything and everything to try to stop us. You know, there's a story of um, the devil getting an update from some of his demons. I think it's based on the, probably based on the screw tape letters. But the first demon reports that he had caused 100 Christians to be killed. The devil was unimpressed. You know, their future was secured in Christ anyway, so what was the point? So the second demon, he reported that he had caused so much havoc that Christians had to go into hiding. Again, the devil wasn't, was unimpressed. In fact, he was a wee bit concerned because when the church is on, on being persecuted, it grows. And there was the chance that many other people would come to know Christ through this persecution. So the third demon, well, he didn't think he had too much to report. He came up and he says it filled a small group of Christians with apathy. And the devil was overjoyed. And he just said, make sure they never wake up. Make sure they stay asleep. So what is apathy? 
Well, the dictionary definition, it's a state of not caring. It's the absence or suppression of passion, emotion or excitement. It's a lack of interest in or concern for things that others find moving or exciting. And it's a word that sort of didn't come into being until the late 1900s, early 1600s, where it meant then insensibility to suffering or to be unfeeling. You know, there needs to be an awakening from this apathy. Now, I'm sure you've all heard the term woke. It's all you hear nowadays, yeah? Uh Now, I know it's used about political and racial issues and all the rest of it, but when you look up again the dictionary, it says, the the true meaning of it is to be awakened to the facts, to become aware of the true situation. Church, we need to become more woke. We need to become woke in the truest sense of the word. We need to awaken to the tactics that the devil is using against us. We need to become more aware of what we've lost. The passion for Christ, the passion to see this world around us rescued from the devil's grip. We need to renew our enthusiasm to live for Christ, to join our hearts with his so that we feel his compassion for others and we then display this in our actions towards them so that we feel his love, his forgiveness, his longing, his uh, longing, for his rela- longing for a relationship and we show the world that this is who our God is. You know, there's no place for apathy in the family of God. So up to this point, the city of Jericho was open for trade. The gates were open, people were coming and going just as they had always done. But you know, the moment the Israelites crossed the river, the scripture tells us that everything changed. The gates were shut. The people were afraid. So afraid that they never even tried to attack the Israelites when they were weakened. You know, if you picture the scene, actually the Israelites had crossed the Jordan. They're in the promised land. Now all they have to do is go out and take what God said was theirs, what he was giving to them. You know, they're excited, they're pumped, they're ready for action can't wait to get moving, ready to tear down those walls brick by brick. But what's Joshua doing? He's sitting quietly, sharpening knives. Because before going to war, these men all had to face the knife of circumcision. Now, circumcision is an outward act that signifies something taking place in the heart. Deuteronomy 10, 16 says to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Romans 2.29 says circumcision is that of the heart. So although they performed physical circumcision here, it illustrated something spiritual. This was all about preparation for spiritual warfare. It signified the end of all confidence in the flesh. They had to realize that they couldn't bring down the stronghold in their own strength. So for a short season, Yahweh rendered them totally impotent. Helpless, powerless, useless as warriors. And they had to remain in the camp until they were healed, until they were made whole. You know, Yahweh deliberately brought them to this place of weakness so that he could prove himself strong on their behalf. So that prove that he alone was their defense. So that he could convince them that this wasn't their battle. Victory would only come through him. You know, We can sing all the praise songs we want. We can talk about our talents and abilities and come up with great plans. But it's all meaningless. It's all noise unless we come under the knife of circumcision. 
it's not enough to be fed up with the way things are and be determined to affect change. We have to embrace the fact that we are powerless to bring down strongholds, to bring down our modern day Jericho. We need the resources of our God. We need a supernatural heavenly army to fight the evil powers that have dug into this stronghold. So this is a time for self-examination. You know, have we handed attitudes, addictions, self-reliance over to God in the past? And somewhere along the line, we've picked them up again. We need to search our hearts again. You know, in the natural, once circumcision has taken place, no one lifts the foreskin or the discarded foreskin and tries to reconnect it. It's gone for good. And so it should be in the spiritual. So it's only after this circumcision that the Israelites were ready to listen to God. So the day they recovered was a day that God had allocated to remember the Passover, remembering God's protection against their destruction. So that evening, they offered the Passover sacrifice, and the high priest sprinkled the blood of the lamb over the people. They were covered by the blood. God saw his people released from the guilt of all their sin. They could now go into battle in full confidence, under no condemnation. You know, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. And Romans 8 tells us there's, that, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So when the devil tries to distract us with thoughts of past wrongdoings, we can boldly proclaim, forget it, that was dealt with at the cross. You know, the devil may still try to make us feel guilty about wasting so many years in the wilderness, try to persuade us that we actually belong there for one reason or another. But we've crossed that river, and once our hearts have been circumcised, we are, and we're covered by his blood, the devil has nothing on us. So don't listen to his lies. Don't fall for his deceit. So once the Israelites were circumcised, they were covered by the blood and free from condemnation. You know, Yahweh viewed them as pure. They could now enter into spiritual warfare knowing that their king saw no iniquity in them. And you know, this is the only way that we can go against our Jericho. Circumcised, secured by the blood, brimming with confidence in our God. Only now were the Israelites ready to face the stronghold of Jericho. Those walls had to come down. But you know, as Joshua stood on the hill overlooking Jericho, I imagine he spent a long time strategizing about how to bring down this stronghold. You know, we can't just full-on attack and be a bloodbath. So how are we going to do this? Do we dig under the walls? Do we scale the walls? Do we burn the gate down? Do we lay siege? Does this sound familiar? Do we change the venue? Do we get a dynamic speaker? Do we get a professional praise team? Do we make a service shorter? Do we provide free coffee? You know, we all like to strategize. But did Joshua see the impossibility of what was ahead and talk to Yahweh about it? Did he cry out, Yahweh, unless you undertake this work, it can't be done? Because, you know, that's the exact place where we need to be. So suddenly a man appeared before Joshua wielding a sword. And Joshua asked, are you for us or against us? The reply, Sar, Sabah, Yahweh. I am commander of the hosts. Didn't actually answer the question. He just stated who he was. In other words, he hadn't come to take sides. He came to take over. 
This battle wasn't the people of Israel against the people of Jericho. This was a battle between Yahweh and the devil. And as we know, Yahweh's Sabbat will always be victorious. The battle was his. So even when we've crossed the river, we've been circumcised, we're covered by the blood, there is still an overwhelming battle ahead of us. And we have to see that this battle isn't ours, it's his. He is committed to doing the fighting for us. Joshua immediately understood the revelation of God's power and might, and he fell on his face and worshipped Yahweh. And then he asked, what would you have me do? Now we need to understand that the devil had infiltrated Jericho years before this making sure that it was fortified by his unseen powers, principalities, and darkness. He was fully aware of God's promise to give the land of Israel to, land to Israel, and that this was only one scene in the promise of the coming Messiah. The devil was determined to stop the seed of the woman being born. So he directed his demonic forces to dig into the city with every conceivable armament. Only Yahweh's unseen supernatural army could conquer this stronghold. Joshua's job was to simply walk in obedience to the word of God. God's supernatural host would take care of everything. You know, the church has been instructed to heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, to make disciples, to take the gospel of the kingdom to every corner of the earth. <coughs> then Christ will return for his victorious church. The devil knows this, and he's doing everything in his power to stop the move of God through us. He is digging in with apathy, unbelief, man-made religion, judgmentalism, whatever those, all those lists of isms there are. You know, we don't have the power to, in ourselves to dig, to dig out those principalities. We can't do it in our own strength, but our God can. So if we have drawn a line in the sand and remain aware of his presence, have crossed the river, are circumcised and covered in the blood of Jesus, then as a body, we should be seeking direction and guidance for the way ahead. We need to be asking, Lord, what would you have us do? And then we must walk in obedience to whatever he says, no matter how strange it sounds, even if it breaks with our man-made religion, our man-made traditions. As Israel kept walking towards Jericho, you can just imagine this, there's a whirlwind of activity taking place silently in the supernatural world. The host of Yahweh did combat with the principalities of darkness. And each day as the Israelites marched around Jericho, heavenly forces were at work undermining the city's walls. Yahweh's host loosened every brick and weakened the very foundations. Now, can only imagine the thoughts going through the Israelites' heads. You know, they marched all week in obedience, but they saw no evidence of what was going on in the supernatural. There were no visible results of the heavenly hosts working on their behalf, but they continued to march in obedience. And we all know what happened on the seventh day at the appointed time. The priest blew the trumpet and gave a mighty shout, and the walls came tumbling down. It wasn't the shouting. It wasn't all the noise that brought the walls down. It was the hosts of Yahweh pushing them down with supernatural might. You know, if we are living in an awareness of the presence of God, 
if we've crossed that river, if we've circumcised our hearts and we're covered by the blood of Christ, if we have total confidence in our King, recognizing that we can do nothing in our own strength, if we've cried out to God to seek his direction and guidance and we are obedient to whatever he tells us to do, then we shouldn't get discouraged when we don't see results right away. You know, I know that's easier said than done because I'm a bit impatient. I want the results now. I want to see it right now. But we shouldn't get discouraged. Our role is to keep moving forward in obedience to our God, trusting him with whole hearts, believing that Yahweh Sabbat is working for us. His army is battling these principalities and breakthrough is coming very soon. Our Jericho of apathy and unbelief is about to fall. You know, victory is ours because he is unconquerable, he is invincible, and he is undefeated. And Micah 7, 18 says, who is like a God unto thee? There's no one like him. Our God has lost none of his ancient power. He's given none of it away. He's the same God today as he was in Joshua's day. He is still Yahweh Sabbat. Amen.